Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC 252, which is headlined by Daniel Cormier and Stipe Miocic. It's the rubber match. It's the trilogy. DC goes in there and takes the first matchup. Stipe Miocic comes back and pretty much makes a comeback in that fight itself. Uh, gets the fourth round TKO in the second round over Daniel Cormier. And now here we are. Third fight, we're getting both guys at pick odds pretty much. A little bit of money coming in on Daniel Cormier as this uh, fight week is progressing, but pretty much a pick uh, Close fight, seemingly. Uh, I believe that there is value more so on one side, even at the pick odds, uh, but just stay tuned and listen to the podcast and you guys will know what the fuck I'm talking about. Um, yeah, it's a solid card. There's only really eight fights that I care about on this card. Uh, the first three fights are just strictly filler. And it's it's kind of annoying-ish. You know what I mean? I don't think the UFC really needs to go out there and like fill these cards uh, just for the sake of filling them. You know what I mean? If these guys aren't ready for the UFC, they're not ready for the UFC. You know, just because we had Magomed Ankalaev and... Uh, uh, Ian Kutilaba pulled out earlier this week because of Kutilaba testing positive for COVID. Doesn't mean we need to go out there and find two guys that probably don't deserve to be in the UFC. And that's not any flack towards uh, Kai Kamaka and um, Tony Kelly or whoever the fuck he's fighting. Uh, but like, you know, you just can't go out there and sign these guys and be like, all right, we had two guys fall out. We need to replace that fight. Here are these two guys. Like if it's two guys from the UFC, like I believe uh, on one of the Fight Island cards, they quickly put together Cody Stamen versus Jimmy Rivera after Frankie Edgar and Pedro Munoz pulled out, I believe it was. Um, I'm cool with that. But two guys that are just making their UFC debuts, fuck it. Like why? Just leave it at 10 fights or nine fights or whatever the fuck it was going to be. Um, for that reasoning... I am refusing to go over the first three fights. So I apologize if you guys came to this podcast to find out about the the Doukas and Porter fight, um, the Chavez and Brown fight, and obviously the Kamaka and uh, Kelly fight. I'm not wasting my time with those fights. I have no interest in any of those fights. I have enough good spots in the rest of the eight fights where I feel like... uh, you know, there's enough value in those fights that I don't even need to worry about the first three. So, once again, I apologize if you guys came to this podcast uh, looking for advice on those first three fights. There are plenty of other cappers out there willing to to put their time, to- time towards those fights. So, um, yeah, I apologize off that. So, before we get into this uh, UFC 252 breakdown, uh, we'll quickly go over my UFC Vegas 6 uh, campaign, uh, which was another winning event. That's six straight winning events. And uh, your boy's hot. Hot. <laughs> your boy's fucking hot is what I was trying to say. Um, and uh, we're streaking really right now. So I'm hoping that we can keep this momentum going. Uh, you know, that's plus six-ish or plus at least plus six-ish units over the last three events. Uh, even if we get plus three this time, I'm happy with that. But I want to go in there and, and go for a sweep. So uh, again, let's go over UFC Vegas 6. My first, uh, my dog of the night play or my first dog of the night play, which was the loss, was minus 0.75 units on Akhmedov to win uh, inside the distance inside the distance against Chris Weidman. Uh, you know, Weidman's uh, durability held up. Um, you know, he looked decent. He still looked bad. So I'm still looking to go out there and fade him next time around, uh, at least depending on who his opposition is. But uh, 
you know, I was willing to take that 0.75 unit shot at plus 205 uh, to see if Akhmedov could land that bomb and put Weidman out. He was unable to, and uh, I don't regret that bet. Yeah, I mean, I still don't regret it. So minus 0.75, but after that, it was pretty much all winning for the rest of the card. Um, I had 1.5 units at plus 113 on the under 2.5 for Benio Darius versus Scott Holtzman. I don't know how long it's going to take for the odds makers to realize that Benio Darius is a, a finish or go-get finish type of guy. You know, he's going to always bring the fire. Uh, his striking has only looked good ever since his uh, fight with Adson Barboza. He continues to make improvements there. And his uh, his willingness to exchange in the fire it continues to grow. You know, one of these fights, it's going to catch up to him. I thought, personally, it was going to be Scott Holtzman that was going to be able to catch up to him and, and put him out here. Uh, but, uh, you know, Dariush's durability comes through once again. Uh, beautiful finish. Uh, and I was just happy to catch the, the under two and a half there. So, uh, rather than going with the underdog and Scott Holtzman, I chose the under because I believe both guys had finishing capabilities, and that's exactly what we got. Next up, I had a parlay of 1.5 units uh, at plus 147 on Derek Lewis and Darren Stewart. Let's start off with Stewart real quick. I don't think anybody called Darren Stewart winning this fight via submission. I believe the prop was plus 1900, something insane. Uh, but I'll take the, the I'll take the win any means necessary. I mean, Mackie Pitolo looked good a little early, uh, but Darren Stewart was able to get the guillotine finish and a good win for him there. And then Derek Lewis, you know, withstands the the. Uh, well fuck why can't i think of what the i believe it was a neck crank of some sort um yeah a, a scarf hold scarf hold that's what it is um he survives a scarf hold from alexio Olenek in that first round uh because Derek lewis is just able to survive and endure things that normal men are not able to endure uh and then he goes out there and gets that ko early in the second round big win for him uh and establishes himself once again in that top five of the heavyweight division uh so that catches for 2.21 units happy with that and then lastly the lock of the night play absolutely atrocious line movement prediction on my end i go out there and bet five units at minus 196 on gavin tucker on monday wake up on tuesday to fucking minus 160 are you kidding me like what what i just did not see what the hell people saw in justin james you know what i mean other than the fact that he could probably knock out gavin tucker in the first round and that almost happened yet gavin tucker was able to sustain that uh endure that uh, come back in the second and third round and finally get that finish in that third round and uh, shout out to all the patreon members that were able to tail that gavin tucker round three or even the sub prop that i had suggested and the best bets and props article that i normally drop on the patreon there so if you guys aren't on the patreon you guys are missing some gems the week before we had Derek brunson in round three plus 2200 just saying uh, but yeah, Gavin Tucker, skill for skill, just absolutely blows Justin James out of the water. How the fuck he got down to minus 115 or minus 120, whatever he was. I was just too... I was so bummed looking at the the betting line continuing to close as the as the days went by on the on the fight week. So uh, either way, I was dead confident in Gavin Tucker. I was willing to bet him all the way up to minus two fifty, uh, but I was happy to get that minus one ninety six line. But even after that, minus one fifteen, minus one twenty, atrocity. Whoever is betting out Jane's out there to to get him down there, shame on you. You know what I mean? He was a plus two sixty uh, dog going into that fight against Frank Camacho. And yeah, he took that fight on super short notice. But regardless, you know I mean, those Vegas fighters are staying ready for their opponents. So uh, even if it was a short notice, it was short notice for Camacho too. And Camacho's no world beater either. So the fact that he went from plus 260 against Camacho to now 
you know, pretty much closing as a pick'em against Gavin Tucker, just absolutely ridiculous. I, that's three straight weeks now where like the 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 lock of the night play has had decent action on the opposite side, uh, and you know, pretty unworthy of it in my opinion. The only one. I'll give a little bit of credit to is the Mike Grundy one, uh, but even that, if you really looked into that fight, that was that, that was an Evolua fight, regardless. Um, so yeah, we we profit plus five point seven units on that card. Um, very very big event. Uh, we keep the ball rolling right into UFC two fifty two, which I already have five bets in place for. We got a lock of the night play, two dog of the night plays, and uh, a nice little parlay there for you guys. Uh, yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to this card. Uh, once again, um, the best way to get my bets whenever I'm charging the public, just for a reminder for most of you guys, if you guys are new to this podcast, um, I, I usually give three straight uh, free events, uh, three winning events, uh, and then go to paid picks until I hit my next losing event. So whenever I hit my next losing event, I'll go back to paid pi- or free picks until I hit three straight again, and then we're back to paid picks. Uh, but right now, Seven, six fight, uh, six event winning streak. So your boys on paid events. The best way to get my picks on Patreon. Best value there as well because you guys also get the best bets and props article, which is a huge hit right now. Um, I give you guys my best thoughts on what the best bet is, which is uh, a straight or an over under. Uh, and then my best prop in terms of the best value uh, and which prop I believe would probably hit the most in that fight at the best odds available. Um, and then also you guys get, uh, as you guys will see with these breakdowns, uh, they were pre-recorded. Uh, you guys get those breakdowns as soon as they're recorded. I unhook the camera, hook it up to the laptop and post it on Patreon ASAP. So uh, instead of having to wait for me to drop the whole thing, you guys get it pretty much right away. Um, all right. Uh, that's about it. Let's get into the breakdowns, uh, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Verna Jandiroba versus Felice Herrig. We got minus 320 on Jandiroba, plus 260 on uh, Felice Herrig. Let's start off with Jandiroba, the former uh, strawweight champion over there in Invicta. She came over to the UFC, lost her first fight, and lost her first fight. It was her first ever pro loss, actually. Uh, against Carlos Barzo, which is no slouch, uh, you know, nothing to really hang her head about, um, you know, even Carla, former Invicta champion herself, uh, and then uh, she bounced back with a victory over Mallory Martin, where she was able to get the second round rear naked choke, um, and that was back in December, and now here she is once again uh, fighting Felice Herrig. Um, she makes it pretty easily known, like you just need to watch one of her fights to kind of know what to expect from Jandy Roba, Yet she just goes in there and still is able to 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 do that. You know, I mean, she's still able to go out there, get her opponents down, get the double leg, get her opponents down, and slowly work towards uh, you know either a submission or just pounding your face in. You know, the 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 damage she was able to do to Mizuki in a way, and that five round fight was just insane. You could see the damage on her uh, pretty much from the second round, and it only got worse uh, for pretty much the entire fight. Uh, you know. Heavy top pressure, good submission game, uh, solid ground and pound. Uh, this is a tough fight for Felice Herrig to come back to. Herrig hasn't fought since UFC 229, which was Khabib Connor, uh, where she had lost a decision to Michelle Watterson. And just a reminder, that was October of 2018. So we're slowly or two months shy of her being out of the cage for two years. And this is not the type of fight you want to come back for. Uh, 
two. You know, what I mean, Johnny Roba again, very high level, fifteen and one, uh, has a ton of uh, submission victories under her belt. Um, and Felice Herrig, she's pretty well versed in jiu-jitsu herself. You know, training under Jeff Kern and Team Kern MMA, uh, she has a couple of submission victories under her belt as well. Um, but this is another level, and again, making you know, making a return against a, a high-level opponent like Johnny Roba, you know, somebody should speak to her manager and be like, "Hey, the fuck, you know, I've been out for close to two years. Why the hell you got me going in there against a killer?" And the, the odds reflect that minus three twenty. You know, what I mean that that makes sense. If anything, there's a little bit of value on Johnny Roba there. Um, I expect her to be able to get this fight to the ground with not too much difficulty. Um, there is a little bit of a weird glitch or or um, uh, a miscalculation uh, from the UFC stats team in terms of Felice Herg's uh, takedown defense and, and takedowns. They, they say that there was no takedowns landed in the Michelle Watterson fight uh, for Michelle Watterson, and Watterson clearly got her down in that second round. So I'm not sure what the hell they were seeing, and it wasn't like a trip or anything on Felice Herrig's part. It was like a legit throw that Michelle Watterson was able to land on her. Um, the one thing about uh, this fight that there is a little bit of a question mark about is the only time we've really seen Felice Herrig taken down was from a throw or uh, a head and arm, uh, well, I guess head and arm, takedown as well um jandy roba's seemingly uh favorite takedown is the double leg you know she times it very well she you know she strikes for a little bit and then waits for the right uh time to to dive for the double leg and really get her opponent down um you know she is going to be slightly shorter here uh, albeit like an inch or two um but with that in mind, it's always easier for the person that's slightly smaller to be able to get the takedown. Yeah, sometimes you're going to have to worry about, you know, the those taller, lankier fighters that have a little bit better balance who are able to, you know, kind of like uh, look like Bambi on ice where they're just looking to get their footing even if their opponent picks them up. Uh, but uh, I think Johnny Robo will have uh, not too much difficulty with getting Herrig down. You know, Herrig's coming off of, I believe it's an ACL surgery, so she's had a lot of, div- uh, you know, a lot of time to go through rehab and get her get her game back together. Um, but, uh, you know, I think Jandu Robo will be successful with the takedowns, and I believe she will be successful with maintaining top pressure and potentially working for a submission. The last time we saw Felice Herrig get submitted was actually on The Ultimate Fighter uh, by Randa Marcos, and I believe that was, I just want to confirm when that was, that was uh, August of 2014 when she was on The Ultimate Fighter back then. Uh, that's obviously what caused her to get eliminated from the tournament. Uh, and since then, you know, she's lost to Paige Van Zandt. Uh, she's lost to Karolina Kavakovic. She's lost to Michelle Watterson. You know, sketchy losses. Say what you want about the split decision loss to Carolina. She still lost that fight. Um yeah, Jandy Roba kind of still looks green on the feet. You know, she doesn't look the most comfortable there. Uh, so I definitely would give the edge to Herrig on the feet. But I don't think we're going to see it played out there much. And, you know, Felice Herrig is not like a prolific knockout artist or anything like that. So I don't think Verna needs to worry too much about what's coming at her. Um, the only thing she'll need to worry about, you know, don't get need, you know, to oblivion when you're going for a takedown. Um but outside of that, I think she should be okay. Uh, Herrig may have the slight uh, strength advantage here, but after a certain point, the strength doesn't matter when you have, you know, solid technique, solid tenacity, which Verna has. And uh, yeah, just the, the the resume that Verna has been able to accrue, uh, I believe, um, kind of outweighs Felice Herrig's. 
Biggest win to date on Felice Herrig's record is probably, you know, handing Alexa Grasso her first ever loss. Um, but other than that, you know, Justine Kish, Courtney Casey, um, yeah. Paige Van Zandt. Yeah, I mean, Paige Van Zandt beat her. Albeit, again, back in 2015, it is what it is. But either way, I still think uh, Jania Roba takes the fight, this fight with relative ease. Um, I'm not 100% sold on show, uh, on her getting the submission. I do think that's her best path to victory. Uh, but I could also see her kind of, um, you know, winning this fight via decision as well. Um, you know, Herrig's not a complete slouch on the ground. She trains with high-level guys uh, and a high-level team, especially in the jiu-jitsu realm. So I think she'll be able to hold her own. But I don't think that's going to be enough to, like, get sweeps, get reversals, or even pull off a submission of her own. You know, she doesn't seem to have the most active guard, uh, especially in her fight against Michelle Watterson where Watterson was able to do a lot of good damage from on top when she did get her down so I think Johnny Robo will show even better um, uh, you know better of a showing or better of a performance than Michelle Watterson did when uh, she was on top of Herrig uh, and I do truly think that Verna is more than deserving of that minus 320 price tag uh, and she could be a nice parlay piece if you can find something on the rest of this card to to parlay her with so I do like Verna to win this fight I'll say by submission. I'm going to say second round submission, uh, but I could absolutely see this going to a decision as well. Uh, but I will go second round decision for Verna Jandy Roba. Herbert Burns versus Daniel Pineda. We got minus 280 on Herbert Burns and plus 240 for the returning Daniel Pineda. Um, over under minus 135 for the under, one and a half plus 115 for the over. Uh, one and a half, which is kind of a little uh, surprising to me, uh, a little bit. You know, what I mean, I know that Herbert Burns has gotten a, a bunch of finishes in his last couple fights. Uh, Daniel Pineda, the same thing, but I feel like this might be a more drawn out fight. Um, so the over is probably not that bad of a bet at plus one fifteen. Uh, the the prop that does catch my eye is uh, Pineda wins by decision, which is plus six thirty. Uh, it's kind of shitty for me to just give you my 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 hand before even giving you guys the breakdown. So let's start off with Herbert Burns first. Um, he's currently riding a five fight winning streak. Um, you know, all first round or four of them being first round finishes. Uh, the one uh, his fifth one that I'm talking about was a, a second round finish. But uh, before that, he was in the uh, in one FC where he lost two decisions uh, against good guys in terms of. Uh, you know, records 11-0 and 7-1 and and going into their respective fights. And, uh, you know, Russian guys, the first one, Movled Kaibulayev, uh, took a more wrestling-based appro- uh, wrestling approach. He was able to, you know, uh, pretty much nullify the jiu-jitsu game of Herbert Burns and was able to dish damage from on top and he pretty much rode that fight out. Uh, Magomed Idrizov, uh, that fight was mainly a stand-up fight where he was able to, you know, shuck off any of the takedown attempts from Herbert Burns. Uh, Herbert Burns was even like pulling the whole Fabricio Verdum, Fedor Emelianenko thing where, you know, he would get hit and then just drop to the ground hoping that uh, Magomed would jump in his guard and, and kind of play his game. We never really saw that fight get into the jiu-jitsu realm until like the end of the fight with like 40 seconds left where Herbert Burns was able to get his back, but there was just not enough time and the positioning wasn't correct uh, for Herbert Burns to really pull off that rear naked choke or any other submission of that sort. Um, 
and then you know from since that fight he's just been on a complete wrecking streak um you know he was on the contender series where he got a quick triangle choke over Derek Minner in a fight where Minner was close to getting a submission himself um but Burns was able to uh to to get out of that and then pull off his own triangle choke all within two and a half minutes crazy fight and then Nate Landwehr uh, gets dropped really bad with a knee from the clinch. Uh, and we see uh, Herbert Burns pick up a KO victory there. And then last time around, uh, very surprising how easily he was able to dismantle uh, Evan Dunham uh, and get a quick rear naked choke there. Um, the funny thing is right before recording this breakdown, uh, we got news that Evan Dunham got released from the UFC. The guy just came back from retirement. He probably should have stayed retired. Um, but this time around... Herbert Burns is facing a legitimate tough test in Daniel Pineda. This is going to be Pineda's 40th pro MMA fight. He's 35 years old, so he's not completely over the hill in terms of uh, his skill level and his peak. Um, He's coming over from the PFL. Uh, He did have a little bit of a stint in Bellator as well after his UFC run, as well as Legacy uh, FC before they turned into the LFA. Um, You know, he's coming off of two null contests. That was due to the fact that he tested positive for all of the sauce, apparently. Uh, but he had both those fights in the same night. Jeremy Kennedy and Mov- Movlid Kaibulaev. Uh, Kaibulaev being the guy that uh, gave Herbert Burns his first ever pro MMA loss by riding out on top. Um Pineda did a good job in terms of like uh, setting up a, a hook right after a beautifully placed leg kick that dropped Movlid, and then he followed up with a bunch of strikes and got the finish that way. And then in the Jeremy Kennedy fight, he did a good job in terms of nullifying Kennedy's takedown attempts, uh, staying on the feet, and then eventually wrapping up a guillotine choke, which he was able to get the tap with. Um, before that, uh, KO over Trujillo, uh, you know, j- just had a good solid run. Even his fight against Georgie Karakanian, which was his last loss, uh, that was his last fight in Bellator as well, um, you know, was doing very well for pretty much two full rounds there uh, before Georgie landed a beautiful uh, up kick where we saw Daniel Pineda get cut over his eyebrow. And it did, you know, it, it was big. Don't get me wrong, that cut was big, but it didn't really seem like it was. Uh, really screwing up Pineda's um, uh, vision or anything like that. You know, I mean, it was it was good for, uh, it, it seemed like it was just dripping off to the side and that whoever that doctor was, that doctor didn't seem like he, you know, did any MMA fights in the past before because he like pretty much called it off right away. Um, you know, Pineda obviously wanted to still be in there and uh, yeah, he was doing good damage from on top against Karakanyan. Uh I find it weird that Karakanyan was just, so, you know, he, he did go over to Jimmy Smith and the commentators and be like, I got my ass beat up until that point. But then still, he was like celebrating like, you know, I, I get it. Well, actually, I don't know about Bellator in terms of their like show and win money. I think he just gets a base pay regardless. But in terms of like just celebrating getting your ass whooped for nine minutes and then just hitting an up kick and then winning via stoppage. Like if it was an up kick and he got the knockout. All right, I would understand it, but you got your ass beat for nine minutes. Why the fuck you celebrating like you just knocked this guy out and and had a, a great performance? That that's not what it should be. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to see his other loss um, to Emmanuel Sanchez. I uh, just couldn't find the tape on it. We do have it on the tape index. However, Canadians are geo-blocked on the Bellator MMA website, uh, and it was hard for me to find anywhere else where I could find that fight. So. Um, it was a split decision loss, so very close fight. So since his initial UFC run, which was his last fight was UFC 171 back in March of 2014, he could essentially be 11-0. and 0. 
you know, take away the, the steroid thing and, you know, to say that, uh, you know, the, the fight with Karakhanian still kept going and say that a second judge gave him that Emmanuel Sanchez fight. He could be 11 and 0, 11 straight victories, but 9 and 2, which is still very, uh, you know, respectable. It was, it's still a very solid run. And his losses, you know, Emmanuel Sanchez is one of the top guys in Bellator now. So that's not too bad of a loss, I'd say. Um, and then obviously the Karakhanian thing, I'm going to chalk that up as a W. You know, if you lose via cut, especially in a fight where you're just absolutely dominating the fight, I'm calling it a W. Uh, and then again, say what you want about the sauce. He's probably on the sauce in those PFL fights, uh, but did have a very dominant performances there. And my main thing here is, uh, it doesn't seem like he was in the USADA testing pool for super long. I'm, I might be off on that. Uh, but with that said, he might be able to get away with something here. Just say, <laughs> but I don't want to harp too much on that because I do think he is very talented. He has a strong wrestling game. Uh, he has heavy top pressure. He's able to do a lot of damage from on top, and he hasn't been su submitted since 2010 against Chas Kelly, which was over 10 years ago. So you got to believe he's gotten better and better since. And you can say the same thing for Herbert Burns in terms of you know it's been almost three years to the date from his last loss. So maybe in those three years he's been able to make a bit of a, a change. However. In my opinion, the line is still way too wide for this fight. This line should be, you know, Herbert Burns' slight favorite. That's 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 what I think. Daniel Pineda, you know, you guys know that I don't really like to bet on guys that are making their UFC debuts. But Daniel Pineda, you know, for most of you guys who are watching this, I'm not, I'm not sure if you guys were watching the UFC back in the UFC 170 days, but... Um, uh, you know, he was a solid prospect. He had some decent wins. Uh, what were his losses? Robert Whiteford, uh, Diego Brandel when he wasn't too, too bad. Unfortunate loss via punches to Antonio Carvalho, who's not that bad. Mike Brown when he was killing shit too. But he did manage to fin uh, finish Pat Schilling, Mackin Semerzer, um, Justin Lawrence, who was actually, uh, you know, he was seen as a highly touted prospect, especially after that ultimate fighter. Um and then, uh, you know, lost to Brandau and Whiteford, and then went on that that little bit of a run post-UFC. But here he is back, and I still think he belongs in the UFC. Um, I think people are, there's a huge recency bias with Herbert Burns in terms of just getting those quick first-round finishes uh, in the contender series, in the UFC, uh, twice against decent competition. You know what I mean? Uh, Evan Dunham a little bit too far over the hill, whereas I think Pineda is still, you know, he hasn't, passed over that hill yet i think he's still very capable of having dominant performances and i think he could absolutely do that here against burns so at minus 285 or minus 300 whatever the fuck uh herbert burns is currently at what, what did i say minus 280 i saw him in the minus 300 ish range seems like the line uh is closing rightfully so uh Pineda should not be a plus 240 a plus 250 underdog he should uh be you know closer to plus 120 plus 130 in my opinion so uh, there is a huge advantage in the implied odds, in my opinion, uh, for Pineda. So, uh, yeah, I think he's a he's definitely a live dog here. He should not be this big of a dog. I could see him go out there and get the takedowns as long as he survives the first round in terms of not, you know, one, getting knocked out, two, getting submitted, which I, you know, there is a possibility of that. Burns is a very high-level jiu-jitsu player, but I still think that Pineda's uh, experience, his wrestling, his top game, it's good enough for him to be able to uh, survive whatever Herbert Burns is throwing up at him. Um, 
yeah, I think Pineda's a, a really good uh, underdog here, and I do like him to win, and I think he's going to win by decision. I think he plays it a little bit safe. I think Burns does threaten a bit with the, with the submissions, but Pineda plays it a little bit safe, uh, racks up the rounds, gets the decision victory, and a plus 680 for, for that prop, that's not that bad of a, a shot in my opinion. So I will go with Daniel Pineda to win this fight via decision, um, and uh, yeah, stamp his return to the UFC. Vinya Hanata Souza versus Ashley Spider Monkey Yoder. Uh, just a fun fact, something that I learned from my first ever Combatus Source guest, Fernanda Praches. The Inya in these Brazilian names uh, means little. So I'm guessing uh, she's little Lavina or something like that. I don't know, whatever. Um, when this uh, matchup was initially announced, um, I was dying to get into the tape because I truly believed that. Um, that I was going to go in here and bet uh, Hanato Souza. You know, I coming over from Invicta, she, you know, she looked really good over there. Her only loss before coming to the UFC was to Angela Hill. That was in a five-round fight. Uh, and then she's suffered her second career loss against Brianna Van Buren last time around. And I believe that the line may look a little bit wider, Um if she didn't lose that fight or if she just came straight off that Frodo fight into this Yoder fight. Uh, but I believe with that loss, um, you know, her, the, the line is a little bit closer than it probably would have been. Um, you know, Van Buren brings this weird style of, not really a weird style, but a pretty efficient style. She has good hands. She has good movement, uh, good takedowns, um, you know, um, being able to get uh, in and out of positions without really uh, eating too much damage, at least in that fight against Souza. Um, but Souza, we, we kind of know what her game is. Like she wants to, uh, she is most successful when she's able to get her opponents down and initiate her jujitsu. But when it gets a little bit tricky against, uh, you know, opponents that have slightly, you know, just as good jujitsu or better, or even just a notch below, the fight gets a little bit closer than it should be, especially when you're talking to a girl, a girl like Souza, who, you know, seemingly, uh, is is a is a high level opponent or or a high level fighter? You know she's fifteen and two. I believe that is her. Re- yeah, I'm sorry, thirteen and two coming into this fight with Ashley Yoder, and you know I th- I had a huge uh, I had huge hope for hopes for her when she came into the UFC. Like she was a minus thousand favorite or something or minus twelve hundred favorite against Alex Chambers, and rightfully so. She went in there and dusted her in a minute and twenty one seconds with a guillotine choke, um, but. When you see some of these fights, uh, you know, they, they're they actually a little bit closer than than you would expect. You know, her opponents do have some success in terms of uh, threatening with some submissions. And I don't mean success in terms of ending up tapping Sousa or anything like that. But they get her into compromising positions uh, that, you know, maybe another fighter would be able to finish uh, some of these positions. Um you know, she, she does have a good uh, jiu-jitsu game, but again, she is susceptible to getting reversed and, and swept and, and uh, you know, allowing opponents to, to throw up triangles, throw up armbar attempts. And she does a decent job of getting out of them and, and getting her position back. Um, but in this fight against Yoder, man, Yoder is a little bit slick, you know. Uh, you, don't let her record fool you, you know. She's 7-5. and five. She's coming off a loss to Randa Marcos last time around, which was a very, very close fight. Um, you know, her loss or her both wins over Siri Kondo and uh, Amanda Cooper probably seemed a little bit closer than it should have been. You know, she she probably should have wrecked those opponents a little bit more. Um, 
but uh, the the fight against Mackenzie Dern, she did a really good job in terms of keeping Dern off of her, uh, keeping it on the feet. But Dern did a really good job in terms of clinching her. Uh, and with the threat of the takedown there, I feel like it really threw Yoder off a little bit. In this fight against Souza, though, um, I believe Yoder might have the slightly better stand-up striking. Like both of them aren't any anything special when it comes to the striking realm. Uh, for Souza, you know, she doesn't really throw in too many combinations. She has a little bit of power. She has dropped opponents in the past. Um, you know, most notably, uh, Yam. Yeah, ah, damn, I'm completely fucking up her name. Ayaka Hamasaki. Uh, beautiful finish in that fight, um, but. I believe the the reach and the height of Yoder can definitely play a little bit of a factor in this fight. So Souza's coming into this fight five foot three, sixty three inches, and we got five seven and sixty six and a half inches for Yoder reach. Um, and, and yeah, it, it, I just don't know what type of fight we, uh, we we're going to see Yoder uh, implement here. You know, obviously in the Dern fight, she wanted to keep it on the feed. Uh, we all know that Dern has super high level grappling. Uh, and even when Dern did get Yoder's back, Yoder did a really good job in terms of like defending that uh, rear naked choke. She did a really good job with, you know, two on one in terms of peeling off the, the hand that was uh, supposed to be there to tighten the choke. Um uh, but she did a decent job on the feet, and I think here she should be able to uh, to kind of keep Souza on the end of her punches. Uh, she has decent takedown defense as well, uh, which was uh, you know kind of surprising when I got into the tape. Um, and but I do believe the the judo of Souza would be able to uh, allow her to complete some of these takedowns. But again, once it gets to the ground, uh, it, it's kind of concerning uh, the amount of times we've seen Souza kind of uh, you know reverse swept. Um, put into compromising positions and Yoder you know the, the spider monkey nickname is uh, she lives up to it she is she's really really crafty on the ground um, I think a lot of wiki wiki cappers are out there now kind of just fading Yoder due to the fact that she has a seven and five record but once you really dig into the tape you see that this woman is quite uh, talented and quite skilled uh, again especially when it comes down to that uh, the the jiu game uh i don't see either girl going out there and uh, uh submitting uh, the other one uh i think this one will go to a decision but i believe it's going to be a super close fight i could see it going back and forth and if that's how it's going to play out you would think that the line would reflect that a little bit more you know minus 165 for Souza is a little bit steep in my opinion um with that said, at plus 145, I'm not too compelled to go out there and play Yoder either. Um, I do believe she is the value side here. So if you do want to make a bet, I think Yoder is the side to go. Um, obviously, if you want to play the over two and a half, good luck playing that juice at minus 300 or whatever the fuck it's at. But um, I think this fight is much closer than the than the odds dictate right now. So I'll go with Yoder to win this fight by decision, but I, by like a hair, it's going to be a super close fight. Um I kind of hope it does play it on the ground so that we can see a little bit of these questions answered a little bit more in terms of Souza's uh, jiu-jitsu, uh, being able to keep top position and get submissions, uh, and then Yoder, uh, you know, to, to get a win like Lavina uh, Hanata Souza under her belt, very, very impressive. So I think she is capable of doing that. Uh, I'm just not the most confident in actually betting her myself, uh, but I do like Yoder to win this fight by decision. And uh, I think she'll be successful in terms of uh, getting the better positions and, um, you know, kind of controlling Souza in some of these spots. But I, again, I believe it will be very close. I went into this fight or went into the research of this fight wanting to bet uh, Souza, but come out on the other side and, you know, I'm picking Yoder now. And 
yeah, I, I'm kind of questioning Souza's skill at this point. So, um, taking Yoder to win this fight by decision, very, very close fight. Um, but yeah, you got to go with the dog in this situation. So, I'm going to go with Ashley Yoder to win this fight by decision. Jim Miller versus Vince Pichel. We got minus 125 on Pichel, plus 105 on Jim Miller. Uh, and we also have plus 110 on the under two and a half for uh, this fight. Let's start off with Jim Miller. He has a victory over Roosevelt Roberts last time around in a fight where I'm kicking myself for not taking the the plus money on Jim Miller. And say what you want about, you know, that kind of being a fluke in terms of uh, the way that Roosevelt Roberts tripped and how Jim Miller ended up on top of him and then eventually got that armbar. It is what it is. It's MMA. You know, the threat was there. We knew that Jim Miller was the much better grappler, uh, much better ju- jiu-jitsu artist as well. And uh, it played out. It, it happened just like Alexei Olenek ended up on top of Mark Hunt in that fight when not a lot of people thought that that was going to happen. It fucking happened. So a uh, big one for Jim Miller there. Before that, he got completely starched by um, Scott Holtzman. But one thing you can almost guarantee with Jim Miller, at least more so recently as well, is that most of his fights are not going the distance. He's going out there, he's getting the finish, or he's the one getting finished. And I think in this fight with Vince Pichel, uh, there's a high likelihood of another finish. Um, which side it's going to be, I'm not 100% sure. I got to give the jiu-jitsu advantage to Jim Miller here. He is the more crafty guy on the ground. He has a lot more uh, submission victories under his belt. Vince Bichel, strong grappler himself too, but maybe not as much in the jiu-jitsu realm, uh, at least comparatively to Jim Miller. Bichel himself, in his last fight, actually had a victory over Roosevelt Roberts. That was back in June of last year, so he's taken just over a year off. Uh, he was scheduled to fight Alexander Yakovlev back in uh, November. Bichel had to withdraw due to injury, but uh, now here he is back against the vet in Jim Miller. And you know, even though Pichel has 14 fights, the guy's uh, 37 years old. The guy's been around for a while, um, at least in terms of like uh, competing, but not actually fighting. You know, what I mean, like he's he's been around the game, uh, but just has you know had issues in terms of getting himself into the cage. It's weird to think that Jim Miller is actually the younger guy here too. Um, so I do believe that Pichel is a stronger guy. I believe he'll have the slight advantage when it comes to the striking. Um, but I do believe that uh, Pichel is going to want to try to get this fight to the ground and try to implement his top pressure. I don't think that's going to be smart of him, though. I think that Jim Miller will be able to catch something from the bottom and early, um, or I could also see these guys fucking swinging for the fences. I mean, Jim Miller has a little bit of power in his hands. We saw him rock uh, Clay Guida uh, before finishing him with the submission, uh, and Vince Pichel, we know he can crack as well, too. Um I expect, you know, when Jim Miller is kind of that ingredient, I always like to look for it in, um, you know, betting a fight when it goes the under. And I believe Pichel, you know, he's not like the, he's not the perfect ingredient in terms of making sure the under hits. But I think that Jim Miller could definitely bring it out of him, whether it's him just getting cracked himself or, uh, you know, putting himself in a position to get finished. I don't have a strong lean on either side here. Um, I could see absolutely, you know, Pichel taking down Jim Miller, kind of controlling him in that first round and maybe getting a second or third round ground and pound finish or Jim Miller just, you know, cracking Pichel himself and then following up with some sort of submission like a club and sub type of uh, uh, scenario. I'm not confident in either side, though. The only thing I am confident is in the under. I do think that one of these guys will get the finish. Um, I think it's either a Pichel TKO or a Jim Miller submission. 
not completely confident on either side, uh, which is why the line is kind of, you know, around the um, pick a mark. It seems like it's starting to float a little bit more so to Pichelle's side, uh, and I can understand that. You know, people like to fade Jim Miller, especially this late into his career, and the guy holds, like, the most... Uh, in most appearances in the UFC, so I kind of get it. The wear and tear is definitely there. And Vince Michelle, even though he's slightly older, he does have less, less miles on his body. Um, but I do like... Um, I'm going to take Miller. I think Miller pulls off the submission here. I think he, he does hit and uh, hurt Vince Michelle, and then eventually pulls off whether a rear naked choke or some sort of arm triangle choke. Um, but I do believe that Miller will get the victory. Um Again, not confident enough to take the plus money on him, uh, but I do think the under two and a half is not that bad at that plus 110 mark. So not the deepest or craziest breakdown here for this fight, but, uh, you know, and again, it did come together pretty late. I think they only announced this fight like last week, so uh, that's something else to take into consideration here. Jim Miller had a pretty quick fight against Roosevelt Roberts, and it wasn't that long ago either. That was June 20th, so... Just under two months later, Jim Miller's back in action. Um, third fight of 2020, wants to stay busy, good for him. And then also there is a little bit of ring rust possibility for Vince Pichel after him being out for as long as he was. So I'm going to take Jim Miller to win this fight by a fresh round submission. Uh, but the, the confidence level is kind of low here. Uh, but I will take Miller by first round submission. John Dodson versus Marab Devalishvili. We got minus 220 on Marab and plus 180 on Dodson. And this line, first it went down and uh, started to close a little bit. And now it's starting to widen once again. Uh, I remember seeing Dodson around the plus 150-ish range. Yeah, plus 150 roughly. And now he's up to plus 180, plus 195 in a couple places. I wouldn't be surprised to see my plus 200 uh, come fight time. Uh so let's start off with uh, John, actually. You know, he's coming off a victory over uh, Nathaniel Wood. Nathaniel Wood was seeming to have the upper hand in that fight, you know, just quicker to the strike. Uh, you know, he was using his range very well. Uh, he was using his height very well. His one-two, especially his right hand, though, just right down the middle was beautiful. It's so quick. Uh, he's able to cover a lot of distance with it. Um, and then he's able to, you know, just clinch up with John Dodson uh, and, and have a little bit of um, success there. The good thing about John Dodson, though, is he he's very slimy. Like he he he's able to get out of spots. He's very hard to keep down. Um, pretty much any fighter that gets him down, uh, he he gets him, himself right back up. Uh, but one thing you can always guarantee John Dodson will bring to to or actually two things that you can guarantee uh, whenever you see a John Dodson fight is his speed and his um his power. It always translates. Um, and yeah, he you know that was his first knockout since. Manny Gamburian back in 2016. Since then, he's fought guys at the likes of John Lineker, Eddie Weinland, Marlon Moraes, Pedro Munoz, uh, Jimmy Rivera, Piotr Jan, and Nathaniel Wood. Um, obviously knocking out Nathaniel Wood last time around. Now, the the love people are giving uh, John Dodson and and some of the people that are you know trying to trying to debunk the love that John Dodson is getting is trying to. Uh, bring into the, the the narrative that John Dodson, you know, getting the KO in his last fight against uh, Nathaniel Wood, um, that it's playing a little bit of recency bias. And I don't necessarily agree with that. You know, yeah, it, it could be a little bit of recency bias with other people, but for me specifically, I'm not really taking that. Like, like obviously it helps that he was able to go out there and knock out a, a prospect in, in Nathaniel Wood. But it's it's more so the styles here. You know what I mean? One thing you, you see in Marab's fights is that he gets hit. 
and he gets hit like like he is he's quite hittable yeah he moves a lot yeah he gets a lot of takedowns yeah he has endless cardio but the one thing you can't neglect is the fact that he gets hit and if you get a guy that hits as hard as john dodson uh you know i like my chances at that plus 200 ish line and i did see that the in, inside the distance is around plus 400 which is even more intriguing you know this line should be a little bit closer in my opinion uh i'd be fine with marab around that minus 150 minus 140 range uh but uh you know people love Marab and I'm one of those people I love Marab too and uh, he's won me a lot of money in his past couple fights uh, he was juiced in some of them but he was deserving it in those uh, but stylistically you know there are guys ranked above John Dodson that I would probably bet Marab Devalishvilian but uh, this fight is just a little bit different you know it's just a little bit more uh, risky in my opinion if you're a Marab backer you know we know that he's going to get the takedowns and we know that John Dodson is probably going to get right back up you know, say what you want about Rob DeVos really landing what whatever fucking twenty plus takedowns a fight. That means that his opponent got up nineteen or twenty or twenty one times. He doesn't do a good job of controlling his opponents when they're on the ground, which is why he's able to get endless takedowns. And sure, that might be like the Kane Velasquez approach. You know what I mean? Where just keep taking a guy down and he's gonna just tire himself out getting back to his feet. Yeah, I kind of understand that. I kind of get that. But John Dodds never really shown crazy amounts of uh, cardio issues in the past. The guy's able to carry his power throughout his fights. You know, all three uh, in the third round, he takes out Nathaniel Wood, uh, drops Piotr Jan as well. That's something that's kind of a, a feather in his cap too. Considering that a lot of people will say that Piotr Jan is a much better striker than Marab Devalishvili. So, uh, especially striking defense, uh, you got to give it a little bit. Uh, you got to definitely give the edge to Piotr Jan over Marab Devalishvili. So. I'm expecting Marab to go out there and just take down Dodson endless, endlessly and endlessly. But I'm expecting at a certain point that he's going to slip up. John Dodson is going to land that bomb and it's going to be night night for Mr. Marab. Uh, you, you guys know my style though. Like if I, if I, if I believe that the knockout is really the only way for an opponent to win, I normally either fade them or I just pass on the fight totally. But with Dodson, uh, and again, this matchup with Marab, I feel like he can find that button. And, uh, you know, even if it's just a poke on the inside the distance at that plus 400-ish line, it is definitely worth it. You know, if Marab had a little bit better striking defense, I probably wouldn't be as uh, heavy on this or I wouldn't be as, you know... Um, uh as confident per se or or as strong on this position uh but yeah like he's there to be hit john dodson still has the speed he still has the power um and yeah i like dodson here you know i again you, you're kind of stacking all your chips on him hoping to get the ko i believe that there is enough of an opening there for him to get that ko uh but all in all like it's hard for me to see how dodson is going to go out there and win a decision of any kind so you know you can either go marab via decision or dodson inside the distance um i'm feeling a little bit more so on the john dodson side so i'm going to go with john dodson uh to win this fight by a second round ko um or maybe even third round ko not 100% sure, but I do believe he gets it done. And I do like that inside the distance price tag. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to go with Dodson to win this fight by second round KO. Jerzinho Rosenstrike versus Junior Dos Santos. We got minus 135 on Jerzinho and plus 150 on Junior Dos Santos. This fight, the odds have started to close closer and closer. Actually, it looks like Jerzinho opened around minus 125, got bet down to about minus 150, and now he's closing back in uh, around that minus 130, minus 135 range. Um, close fight, you know, um, but 
after further investigation, uh, I feel like the favorite, Jersey New Rosenstrike, is rightfully the favorite. And could possibly say he deserves to be a bigger of a favorite. Um, so let's break it down a little bit. Uh, the First and foremost, the, the over-under is 1.5, minus 105 for the over, minus 115 for the under. Um, I could see this going both ways, so I probably won't touch that. Um, but uh, let's start off with Junior Dos Santos. Most recently, he got knocked out by uh, Curtis Blades back in January. Um, and then before that, obviously, he got deaded by Francis Ngannou. And then he had three solid victories over Blagoy Ivanov, uh, Tai Tuivasa, and Derek Lewis. So what's the difference between those guys that he beat and the guys that he lost? Those guys that he beat, kind of like punching bags almost. You know what I mean? Like he, he Trinidad Santos is a solid technical stri- striker, moves well for a heavyweight, uh, boxing is on point. Uh, but those guys, Blagoy Ivanov, Tied Tuivasa, and Derek Lewis, they're not as technically sound as Junior nor do they have as good footwork. And we know that Tai Tuivasa, you know, came into the UFC with a little bit of hype, but got quickly extinguished after he lost a couple of fights, most uh, most notably to Sergei Spivak. Um, but, you know, Dos Santos in those fights, even you can even go back to the Ben Rothwell fight that he won back in 2016. You know, Dos Santos looked on point and he looks so much better when he fights those guys that that's why I believe that the line is as close as it is. Once he fights guys that are a little bit, you know, have more power or are technically just as good or have abilities to set traps uh, with other parts of the game, it kind of throws Junior Dos Santos off. And I think that this is the first like legit pure striker that uh, Junior Dos Santos is going up against, um, you know, since uh, Alistair Overeem, who knocked him out back in 2015. Um, But, you know, uh, I I think the most effective way for Junior Dos Santos to win this fight is probably to try to get it to the ground and maybe just grind out Jorginho. But as we've seen in Jorginho's fight against Alistair Overeem, he's been working on his get-up game. You know, Alistair Overeem got him down in that first round, but after that was able to keep it on the feet for the majority of that fight, uh, but did a really good job in terms of getting back to his feet. Um, and then obviously we know how that fight ended. And yeah, Jorginho was about four seconds away from losing that fight, but the type of fight that Overeem brought to Rosenstrike, which was a clinch heavy game up against the fence, uh, you know, solid knees, stay active enough so the referee doesn't split them up. Uh, that's not Junior Dos Santos's game. Junior's game is like sticking and moving, staying uh, staying on his bicycle, uh, you know, not not really a clinch fighter, um, doesn't really go for takedowns. You know, here's a statistic for you guys. He's only um, attempted one takedown since his fight with, his first fight with Stipe Miocic, which was back in 2014. Uh, he attempted a takedown on Blagoy Ivanov, was unsuccessful there. Um, but yeah, he's only attempted one takedown. So we, you can't really go into this fight thinking that, okay, he's going to go out there and he's going to try to take uh, Jorginho down and try to ride him out. We have no evidence of that. Like he's fought guys in the past where, you know, even after he's been knocked out and people are thinking that he's chinny, you know, after he got knocked out by Alistair Overeem, after he got knocked out by Stipe Miocic, um, well, let's go back. After he got knocked out by Overeem, uh, he went into that Rothwell fight, and a lot of people are like, all right, Rothwell has some ridiculous just grunt power. He could probably go out there and knock Junior Dos Santos out. What did Dos Santos do? He goes out there and just picks apart Ben Rothwell for five rounds. I believe that was the main event. Uh, 
yeah, for five rounds, he just picks him apart, pretty much just beats up his body uh, and really doesn't allow Ben Rothbard to get started. Stipe Miocic goes out there and knocks, uh, gets knocked out by Stipe Miocic. So what do we think he's going to do in the Blagojevna fight, the Tai Tuivasa fight, and the Derek Lewis fights? He's probably going to want to take these fights to the ground, right, and try to beat them that way. No. He goes out there and tries to, like, box them up and finish them that way. And he did. He was very successful with that against uh, Blagoy, against Tai. And then even then in the Derek Lewis fight, um, I believe it came out afterwards that Derek Lewis just had these horrible back issues uh, that was really just screwing him up. But even if he didn't have those back issues, I still feel like Junior was going to be able to dance circles around him. Uh, as long as he didn't get hit by some crazy bomb, he would be able to dance circles around him, beat him up to the body, and then I'll point him if he didn't get that finish. Um, and then obviously Francis Ngannou goes out there and knocks him out. Uh, Curtis Blades... That was a fight fairly even in the first round, but I feel like the threat of the takedown from Curtis Blades really had Junior Dos Santos kind of on the tip of his toes and didn't really allow him to to kind of go out there and strike. Um, you know, Blades did shoot for a couple of takedowns there. JDS showed that his takedown defense is still good, um, but I think that Curtis really wasn't, sh- um, you know, trying for those takedowns as much as you thought he would uh, just to kind of like get it into Junior's head that, all right, you know, yeah, you, you your your scouting report said that I'm going to be going for takedowns. Yeah, it's there, but I'm also going to be throwing hands at you and throwing kicks at you to kind of keep you on your toes. And the way Curtis Blade set up that finish, an absolute thing of beauty. Just uh, feints the takedown, and you kind of see it. Like, Junior uh, Santos already had it, like, implanted in his brain that whenever Curtis Blades is going to go for a takedown I'm going to launch this rear uppercut and hopefully it lands on him uh, as he's on the way in and then that should get me the victory right wrong Curtis Blades does a great job of feinting the takedown and then coming back with a one-two to completely stun Junior Dos Santos and then he follows up with a barrage of shots that ends up getting him the TKO victory but uh, when guys are able to to, to get JDS overthinking a little bit. And I think that Jerzino is going to do a really good job in terms of setting up uh, shots on the feet, um, you know, leg kicks. Uh, he's clearly will be the better overall striker. Uh, he does a lot, a lot better with his striking defense as well, too. One thing that has waned in Junior Dos Santos is his career. Uh, has been in striking defense like he still keeps his hands down uh still thinks he has a granite chin for some fucking reason um but Jerzinho on the other hand uh you know we know how much power this guy is able to generate how much power this guy is able to um you know put on his opponents and I don't think that Dos Santos's chin and durability is going to be able to hold up here now people can go back and be like all right Jerzinho just got absolutely rocked and wrecked by Francis Agano back in May True, but I don't think that we're going to see Junior Dos Santos land uh, a good enough shot uh, or something even close to what Francis was able to land. Um, so, so I think Jerzinho will be fine in terms of durability and being able to 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 eat whatever uh, JDS throws his way. But I think that Jerzinho is just going to be the slightly faster guy. His counters are going to be on point. I feel like we're going to see him, you know, pretty much clip JDS and, and get him out of there. I just. I'm just not sure whether it's going to be over one and a half or under one and a half, which is why I'm not totally totally comfortable with playing the total here. Um, but I like Jerzinho on this. I think he's just the the more calculated, educated striker here. Um, you know, kind of is on the rise still, even though he got halted by Francis Ngannou last time around. He's 32 years old. Uh, JDS. I believe he's getting up there in age a little bit. He's 36 now, so, you know, just on the tail end of his peak. And obviously in the heavyweight division, 36 is probably your peak anyway. But uh, just due to the 
uh, the the type of resume that we've seen Junito Santos put together over his last several fights. I just think that this is a bad matchup for him. And there's that one picture going out and around about Junito Santos where he's just, you know, just looking shredded as shit, just posing like this. Uh, and you just see every ab, every muscle kind of being uh, uh, strained by him. Y'all gotta just cut it out with like getting, with drooling over that. You know, the, the physical condition of a fighter minus what we saw with Jake Collier a couple of weeks ago, that's not going to translate in the fight. You know, I mean, they could look in phenomenal shape, but it's got to translate in the fight. And I think that, you know, that do, that that does that does not show us that Junior Dos Santos has corrected his striking def, uh, defense deficiencies. Um, you know, it just shows us that he's in good shape. That's it. You know, I mean, it's not going to say that his chin is stronger. Like, show me him fucking, you know, show me him bringing Francis Ngannou in and just absolutely wrecking him once again. Or show me him, you know, eating shots from another big striker who's not holding back. And then I'll believe it. Like, if he's able to go out there for these 15 minutes and stand with Jerzinho Rosenstrike, eat all the shots that Jerzinho has to throw at him and is still coming out on top. Well, even if he goes to a decision uh, after eating all those shots, I'll still give him, uh, you know, I'll say his stock goes up. You know I mean? The questions about Junior Dos Santos have been around his chin, uh, but also his striking defense. Uh, but again, I, I truly believe he's outgunned here against Jerzinho Rosenstrike, who in my opinion is the much more decorated striker, um, has the, the power, has uh, the, the slight youth advantage, if you want to call it that. Even his MMA miles, they're, they're a lot less than what, what uh, Junior Dos Santos has gone through so far. Um, you know, this ain't the JDS of the, the Cain Velasquez trilogies. You know what I mean? Or Well, then again, he, he looked pretty bad in those. But I just mean of that era. JDS, back in those days, was probably one of the best heavyweights of all time. But now, he's just on the tail end of his career. This is a bad matchup for him. Um, he needs kind of another punching bag type of guy that he can just go out there and just box up for 15 minutes or 25 minutes if you want to throw him in a main event spot. But uh, Jerzino should have all the success here, um, you know, from the leg kicks to the boxing, uh, just to the, the overall game. And again, if we go out there and see Junior uh, Dos Santos pull out his wrestling singlet and try to get this fight to the ground, I st- I think that we've seen the improvements from Rosa Strike to be able to get back to his feet, uh, to to allow him to to go back to his striking and really put Junior Dos Santos into trouble. So I'm going with Rosa Strike to win this fight. Um, I'll say by second round KO. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's tough to pick against Sagano, but uh, he's he's really dropped the ball. And uh, it all comes down to styles for him. And this is not a friendly style for him. So I think that we'll see Rosenstrike go out there and get the finish. And at the odds that he's currently at, minus 135, minus 140, not bad. You know what I mean? I think that now that we are seeing a little bit of money coming in on JDS and seeing people kind of buy into that picture that he fucking released a couple weeks ago, um, if you wait it out a little bit, you might be able to get a better price on Rosenstrike. So I'll be keeping my eye on the betting line, uh, but I do like Rosenstrike to win this fight by second round KO. What's the KO prop anyway? Let's see. Let's get fancy here. Rosenstrike via TKO is minus 105. That's to be expected. Uh, Minus 108 for him to win inside the distance. What's Rosenstrike in round two? Plus 475. Not bad. You guys know I've been on the on the ball with these uh, these round uh, betting methods and stuff. So maybe round two, Rosenstrike after he really gets comfortable, starts to get the timing of JDS down, puts him out. Um, Yeah, totally possible. So I'll take Rosenstrike to win this fight via second round KO. Unfortunately for my boy, uh, for my boy Singano though, uh, so yeah, Rosenstrike round two KO.
Marlon Vera versus Sugar Sean O'Malley. We got minus 325 on O'Malley. We got plus 265 on Chito Vera. Uh, the over-under is at 2.5, and, and we got plus 110 on the under. Uh, let's start off with the Sugar Show. Uh, he's coming off a very impressive victory over Eddie Wineland last time around, where he set up a beautiful trap with an uppercut feint uh, and transitioned that right into a right straight, and it put uh, Eddie Wineland's lights completely out. Uh, it was probably one of the more masterful performances when it comes down to like the the the, the nitty gritty of the striking techniques, uh, especially from Sean O'Malley, who you know he's mainly seen as like a wild striker, likes to throw a lot of spinning stuff, uh, but the amount of volume he's able to generate uh and and his output makes it a lot harder for opponents to really get a read on him and allow them to you know try to find a way to to slow him down and 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 have more success against him i think out of all the fighters that he's fought to this point in the ufc um uh, Terry on Ware is probably the one that had the most success. Uh, he really stayed in his face. Um, I believe he won that second round. It was close, but he won that second round. Uh, but that was just, you know, plain and simple, staying in O'Malley's face, uh, not really giving him space to actually, um, you know, pull off the spinning stuff or or have the room that he needs to, to dictate the pace. Marlon Vera very slow starter we know that uh you know for some reason he loves going for those standing arm triangle chokes and isn't even scared in terms of pulling his opponent back into his guard uh to to try to pull that off and it hasn't really worked out for him in the ufc to this point uh but for some reason he still continues to attack it i highly doubt we'll see him try to attack it here against o'malley i do believe that variable thinks that he'll have the advantage on the ground um and i tend to believe with that or believe that but i don't think it's anything like ridiculous ridiculously over the top where o'malley is going to completely struggle if this fight does hit the ground um i do believe o'malley has the advantage on the feet in terms of just being uh technically the more intelligent fighter um you know good fight iq uh good uh understanding of how to like use his distance uh how to cut angles one thing that i love that he likes to do um and a lot of his fights is he kind of like uh, feints the double jab, comes in with his right hand because it covers so much fucking space. And he does very well in terms of landing that and then ducking and just cutting an angle to get out of the way to avoid any of the shots coming, uh, you know, in return as a counter. Uh, he's hit and landed on so many guys with that shot. Uh, you know, it even it was the one that actually put a Kashkanian. Let me uh, Kashakian, sorry, Alfred Kashakian on the contender series. That's the one that really hurt him. Uh, and then obviously he followed up with other shots to, to get the finish in that fight. But uh, O'Malley just, uh, I kind of like his style. Like th this fight does kind of give me Shabazian and Brunson vibes, but not to the extent where I believe that O'Malley has this one lingering issue, which is his cardio. That's one thing that I feel like has been harped on a lot during this fight week, at least what I've been seeing from a lot of other people. But I don't believe it's that much of an issue. Like it's not Shabazian level. You know what I mean? Like Shabazian sucking wind completely like gas tank on E when it comes to the third round. O'Malley did pretty well in against Terion Ware in that third round, even though he lost that second round and it seemed like the tide was shifting. Um O'Malley did a really good job in terms of staying in there, 
throwing output seemed a little tired, but again was still throwing, still throwing, getting out of the way of big shots. And uh, with uh, Vera, I don't think O'Malley really needs to worry about like one big shot putting him out or anything like that. I think Vera's chances of winning this fight is staying in O'Malley's face, kind of like the Terry on Ware approach. But I feel like Vera is a little bit more uh, lethal and violent in those uh, exchanges when they're in the pocket. I feel like it's going to be hard for Vera to really track O'Malley down and keep him against the cage or keep him uh, cornered in a spot. And obviously with this being a smaller cage, it kind of may favor Vera a little bit more. Uh, but I think that uh, O'Malley has a good understanding of his footwork, his distance management, and ability to get in and out of, uh, of bad situations. Um Going into this, I really wanted to find a, a legitimate reason to fade Sean O'Malley here. Uh, I do still believe, even after finishing the tape, that the line is a little bit too wide. Minus 325, I'm not 100% comfortable with that. Even with parlaying that, I just don't feel comfortable with it. You know what I mean? I feel like this is a legitimate test for Sean O'Malley. Wyland was a solid test, but I feel like he's a little bit more over the hill, whereas Marlon Vera seems to be really coming into his own. And even though he's coming off a loss to Song Yudong, you could easily make a case that he won that fight. And if that did go his way, I believe he'd be on a six-fight winning streak right now. Three, yeah, six fights... Uh, five of them all being finishes as well too so very very impressive on his end um I, I love his fighter mentality the guy just he he thrives in the fire like there's a an exchange i believe it was against yudong or ewell where they're just up against the cage his opponent had their back on the cage they're throwing bombs and what's marlon vera doing not really just throwing bombs but throwing elbows like throwing elbows with intention and that was very impressive. I found that to to be something that uh, that that's a that's a shining spot for Marlon Vera in terms of just being so engaging when it comes to a firefight. I find it hard to believe that Sean O'Malley is going to stay in the pocket and trade with Vera in that type of uh, in that type of instance. Uh, but I truly believe that we'll see O'Malley land a beautiful shot against Marlon Vera to put him out in the first round. With that said, if he's not able to do that, I still believe he'll have success in that second round. But in the third round, it really seems like Marlon Vera turns things on. And I feel like the, the odds aren't out for it yet uh, for Vera to win inside round three. But that might... Oh, wow, look at that. That's got to be a first. <laughs> As I'm recording, they drop the fucking prop. So let's see what uh, they drop Marlon Vera in the third round. Vera wins in round three, plus 22. 2025 not a bad hedge in my opinion if Vera is able to pull it off he might get that late finish uh again he he just has this uh, this switch that turns on when the fight gets a little bit later like even in his fight against uh Nohella Hernandez very flat first round second round kind of flat too until he just turns the switch on lands a couple good shots on Hernandez and then eventually gets the finish you know maybe it comes down to the third round here for Vera um, you know, O'Malley's going to have to throw a lot to keep Vera on the outside. He throws a lot of good kicks, uh, so that should help him in terms of keeping Vera on the outside and keeping him in a position and at a distance for him to land his flashing, flashy movements or his flashy techniques. Uh, but eventually, I think it's going to come down to that right hand where he's able to cover so much distance, land on Vera, get out of the way of any big shots. But I think that might be the the, the night night punch for O'Malley. So um, I do believe he wins in the first round with O'Malley in round one. Plus 325, not a bad bet. You know what I mean? I don't mind O'Malley uh, plus 325 in round one. Um, 
yeah, I, I truly believe he'll be able to land on Vera. But if it does get into the third round, it might get a little bit sketchy, uh, which is why I wouldn't mind hedging with that uh, Vera in round three plus 2025. Uh, but yeah, I am going to take O'Malley to win this fight by uh, first round knockout. Uh, but I just think the odds are a little bit too wide. Main event time, we got Daniel Cormier going up against Stipe Miocic to try to regain the heavyweight title and ride off in the sus- sunset as the baddest man on the planet. We got minus 115 for Daniel Cormier, minus 105 for Stipe Miocic. This fight's pretty much out of pick em. And uh, I, I kind of get it. You know, there's, they split the series one and one. Uh, but when it comes down to skill, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that the line is where it's at. So last time around, or both times rounds, actually, I, I did bet Daniel Cormier. I was very happy the first time around to get roughly around that plus two whatever mark it was, plus 240, I think it was. I can't remember at this point in time. Uh, and then last time around, we got him at uh, slightly, you know, uh, closer of a number. I got him at, um, you know, in the minus 120, minus 130 range, I believe it was. Um, and now this time around, we're getting a dead straight pick You know, people are thinking that they split the fights, so it's bound to be a close fight. And it could be a close fight. But I expect the, the, um, the experience, the fight IQ... And the true skills to come out of Daniel Cormier to really put a stamp on this trilogy and uh, put a stamp on a great career of his. So we know he's the better wrestler. We know he's the more credentialed wrestler. Uh, we know he has, um, you know, um, experience at 205, experience at heavyweight as well. The only reason he really went down to 205 was due to his best friend, Cain uh, Velasquez, pretty much wrecking the heavyweight division at the time that uh, Daniel Cormier came into the UFC. So, without wanting to have to face each other, Cormier decides to go down to 205, uh, you know, gets the title, say what you want about how he got it and the whole John Jones situation, but he became champion, he became double champion after knocking out Stipe Miocic, defends the title against Derek Lewis, um, and that's the fight that I want to touch on in this breakdown, and uh, then goes out there and obviously loses to Stipe last time around uh, due to, you know, just poor fight IQ. Like, the the fact that he's... Uh, um, kind of talked about it. The fact that he's addressed it shows he knows that he came into that fight with a pretty bad game plan, um, or at least just did not execute the game plan uh, as well as he should have, or uh, you know probably not even the game plan that he had in mind. Um, so uh, let, let's talk about the Derek Lewis fight. The only reason I bring this fight up, and I know that Stipe Miocic and Derek Lewis are are, are two completely different fighters. Uh, but the one thing that I do want to draw your attention to in that fight is kind of the ease in which uh, Daniel Cormier had uh, with keeping Derek Lewis down. Uh, you know, t- there were certain times that uh, Lewis was able to get back up, but Cormier did a good job in terms of chain wrestling and keeping him down. We don't often see uh, Derek Lewis be held down that much. You know what I mean? Derek Lewis, um, he has his, like no technique in terms of how to get up, but he just fucking does it. It's like the black beast get up. Like whenever he decides he wants to get get up, he just gets up. But he had a little bit of issues there with Cormier in terms of doing that. And it's not often that we see, uh, you know, Lewis get submitted either. And Cormier did a good job in terms of uh, waiting for the right time to sink in that rear naked choke, got the rear naked choke, and pretty much got that done with ASAP. Um, now let's switch that with when Miocic fought Francis Ngannou. I believe Lewis 
just due to his sheer strength and power and just brute strength, uh, is able to get up much easier than a Francis Ngannou would. Uh, Miocic got him down pretty easy in most of his fights, uh, but had a little bit of trouble in terms of keeping him there. Um, you know, I do believe we did see Miocic's gas tank uh, show issues in that Ngannou fight, and uh, I feel like he kind of rectified it in the in this Corm- in the last Cormier fight. But with that said, I think it was kind of the pacing of the fight where we saw Stipe kind of gas out uh, or, you know, show signs of gassing in his Francis Ngannou fight where he's forced to wrestle, uh, go up against an opposition where it's, um, you know, where he's really just trying to dodge the big shots from Francis Ngannou, close the distance, get the fight to the ground and try to hold Francis Ngannou down. That's where I kind of think that we saw the issues for Miocic and his gas tank. Cormier, on the other hand, in his last fight with Miocic, I feel like we saw a little bit of gas tank issues from him too. But I feel like it was due to the fact that it, it was enough. The fight played out in a in a style that he's not as used to or as familiar with, which is you know mainly in the striking realm. We've never really seen DC go out there and like go strike for strike with an opponent for that. We we were used to him kind of going out there and and relying on his wrestling, relying on his grappling, relying on his clinch game to get these uh, to get the victories in, in most of his fights. We didn't really see much of that outside of the first round. And I'm it's it's mystifying to me that we didn't really even see him go go for that takedown more often in that in the second, third, and fourth round, uh, after he was so successful with it in that first round. You know, he did a lot of good work in that first round with the top control. Um and why he abandoned that, absolutely no idea. You know, even in the corners we could hear uh, you know, Bob Cook and Javier Mendez talking about, you know, this is an MMA fight, you know, use your boxing, use your wrestling get the takedowns but he did none of that like he's just trying to catch Miocic's hands and try to throw counters and yeah he looked good like he did land some good shots uh you know he was uh he had a higher output it seemed like his shots were doing a lot more damage I'm not sure if that's just due to Miocic having a uh you know being easier to cut and being easier to to show superficial damage uh we didn't see much damage on Cormier's face uh but then when you know Miocic's uh, it, it seemed like Cormier was trying to take that round four off a little bit. Um, and that's where Miocic really started to pick up the volume, especially to the body. And that's what opened up the KO for him. I feel like we won't uh, see Cormier allow that to happen once again. I feel like he's such an intelligent fighter and has great fight IQ that he knows where he slipped up and where he has his advantages in this fight. And I believe we'll see him, especially in his swan song, go out there and have a, a pretty much a flawless performance where he gets Miocic down pretty much every single round up until he finishes him. And once we see Miocic start to suck wind a little bit due to having to fight a more grapple-heavy approach from Cormier, we'll see Cormier finish his fight later in the in the fight um, uh, or in the later rounds, probably third, fourth, or fifth round. Um, yeah, I, I just think Cormier has, you know, crushing top pressure. He does a really good job in terms of keeping his opponents down. He's already done it to Miocic before, so we know it can be done. And uh, people can say what they want about the age of Cormier. Miocic is up there in age too, but luckily for uh, Cormier, uh, these in the heavyweight divisions, the, the age just does not matter as much. You know, I mean, you can still have skill, and I do believe that Cormier is probably the most one of the most skilled fighters ever in the heavyweight division. Uh, you know, pretty much side by side with this guy Cain uh, Velasquez, and uh, you know, it, it's. I don't know why it's just been so irritating for me to to hear everybody try to, you know, defend Miocic and say, oh, you know, he's he's the greatest heavyweight of all time. And, you know, 
resume-wise and, and um, you know, record-wise, I get it. I can see that. Um, but I still feel like Cain Velasquez is probably the best heavyweight of all time. You know, I think he would have had fun with Stipe in there. And I feel like if he goes with that, if if Cormier takes that Velasquez-type approach in this fight with Miocic, which he's totally capable of, he should be able to go out there and absolutely mollywop um, uh, Stipe Miocic. Um, I don't feel like we see uh, th- there's much of an issue in terms of Daniel Cormier's chin. Um, you know, he ate a lot of big shots from Stipe Miocic. It was really the body shot that, that started to throw off Cormier first. Really brought his hands down, brought his guard down, and Stipe Miocic landed a beautiful one to uh, to really hurt Cormier, have him stumble up against the cage. But I, tr- I still, I don't believe that Cormier has chin issues. It was just uh, a, a mixture of exhaustion, um, the the beautiful body shots on Stipe Miocic's end, uh, and then you know just Cormier just just crumpling pretty much. I don't think that we'll see that this time around. I, I truly believe we'll see a masterclass performance from Cormier, and that. Yet, I'm looking forward to it kind of dispelling this this image of Miocic that people have. And Miocic, kind of like perfect time, perfect place. You know I mean, he's he was kind of one of the younger guys in the heavyweight division, even though he's up there in age. But he was one of the younger guys going out there and dusting some of these guys that were, you know, uh, kind of a little bit past their prime. The JDSs, the Fabrizio Verdum going in there with a the completely stupid-ass game plan and getting knocked the fuck out um, back at UFC 193. Um... Let's see what was Stipe's other fights. Obviously, I believe, yeah, it was the Overeem fight that got him. No, not the Overeem fight. It was the Lovsky fight that got him the title shot, beats Verdum, knocks out Overeem, who's had just bad chin issues, as we always know. Um, Junior Dos Santos passes prime. Francis Agano, that was a solid win. I'll give him that. Other than the fact that. I, as you guys have been following me for a while, you guys know I I I, I know that Francis Ngannou is pretty much just a a one round fighter or a very one dimensional fighter. If he's not able to land that bomb and he goes to three rounds or goes to a decision, we kind of know what to expect as we saw in the Derek Lewis and the 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 Stipe Miocic fight. So decent win in terms of being able to absorb the shots from Francis Ngannou. Uh, but again, Ngannou not as talented or not as skilled as Daniel Cormier. Loses to Cormier, beats Cormier, and now here we are again for his third straight fight against Daniel Cormier. Yeah, I, I love Cormier in all aspects here. I think we'll we'll, we'll see him go to go to the wrestling a little bit more in this fight. Uh, Stipe is no crazy Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy, and uh, I believe the pressure, the wrestling, the pace is going to be a little bit too much for Stipe. And once we see this fight play out in the wrestling and the grappling realm a little bit more than we did in that in that second fight, you guys will see that Cormier will be a lot more comfortable there. I don't think we'll see him as gassed or or looking as exhausted or tired as he was in the in the third and fourth round of their last fight. But we will see Miocic. Uh, sucking one a little bit more in that that third, fourth, and possibly fifth round if he gets there. But I'm still taking Cormier to win this fight. I think, uh, uh, and again, last thing, great hands by Cormier too. You know, again, as as careless as it seemed, he was landing a lot of good combinations on Miocic. He seemed to be the quicker guy. Um, you know, the, the knockout in the first fight seemed to catch Miocic a little bit off guard. And we saw Miocic, uh, you know, eat a lot of big shots from Cormier second time around. And he was able to eat them and pretty much keep coming forward. But this time around, it's going to be the grappling. It's going to be the wearing and tearing that Cormier put Stipe through for those uh, for those three or four rounds. But I truly see we, uh, I truly believe we see 
Daniel Cormier go out there and get the fourth round TKO via GNP ground and pound. Uh, and yeah, he, he sails off into the sunset as as one of the uh, you know baddest men of all time. In my opinion, we got Cormier. Ugh, you know what? I got like one A and one B, and we're talking strictly UFC. I don't want to get into this whole Fedor talk in terms of pride and MMA in general, but strictly UFC. Um, they may not hold the records or anything like that. Uh, Kane was obviously very much uh, troubled with injuries throughout his career, but I got one A and one B, Cormier and uh, Velasquez, and then I, you got to put Stipe under that, and then maybe we can get into the older guys like Coleman and those guys, uh, but that's just a discussion for a, for a later time. But uh, last thing I will say about this fight, it is very uh, promising uh, and, and, and and encouraging to see Cormier. Uh, he put out that picture of him with the gray beard, Cain Velasquez, which is such a weird look and, and, and just, just weird to see. And then Luke Rockhold as well, as we mainly know, he's been training most recently in Florida, but the fact that he's coming back up there to San Jose to help out his dear friend, Daniel Cormier, uh, it really shows that he's dialed in. Uh, he, he really wants to get this W. Um, and yeah, again, I think it comes down to fight IQ and just skill for skill. I believe Cormier is the much better fighter here. And the fact that we're getting him even money, uh, I believe we'll see him look like a minus 250 or minus 300 favorite once this fight is all said and done. So I'll go with Daniel Cormier to win this fight by fourth round TKO. Um, wouldn't mind a little pinch here and there at the uh, Cormier in round three, round four, round five. If you guys got odds to that, go for that, My, uh, I would say. But I'm going to go with Cormier to win this fight via TKO round four. Uh, and yeah, perfect swan song for, for one of the greatest fighters of all time. And that's a wrap on the breakdowns. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you guys uh, may be able to decipher which bets I ended up going for. If not, you guys can find the bets over on Patreon or my website or on my Bet MMA Tips profile. All the links you can find in the description in the description below. So make sure you guys check that out. And uh, last thing I want to plug before I get out of here, the tape index. If you guys do your own due diligence in terms of doing your research yourself, the tape index saves you a bunch of time. I'd say more than 90% of MMA betters have, uh, you know, kind of do it part-time and have a full-time job, have a family and all that. The Tape Index is there to save you a bunch of time. We have everything that you need to prepare for every upcoming MMA event. Uh, well, Dana White Contender Series, UFC, Bellator, and PFL, if they ever come back. Um, all, all the links you guys need on one page, so all you have to do is bookmark the Tape Index, go to the Tape Index page, and then you have everything that you need to, you know, from fight links, direct fight links, so you don't have to search the web and waste your time with that, direct links to their topology, to their Instagram, as well as their stats page, uh, so it saves a bunch of time, huge, huge time saver, and very, very cheap, $3.99 a month, if you bet at least $5 units, you know what I mean, that's, that's a steal and a half, considering you guys get pretty much every major uh, MMA event uh, in, in that tape index. So just wanted to plug that. All right. Check out the website, MMALOTN.ca. Check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash MMALOTN. And then also my bet MMA tips. Everything, again, is linked in the description below. And uh, yeah, I am, as of this recording, I'm seven subscribers away from 1,000. So if you guys haven't hit that subscribe button yet, 
please do. I hope to achieve that before the end of this event. Uh, and man, that would be a huge milestone. I'd be doing this podcast for nearly two years now. And uh, the steady growth has been very encouraging and very inspiring. And I hope to continue to bring you guys this podcast on a weekly or fight weekly basis. Uh, and I can't wait to do this shit full time. And getting to that 1,000 uh, subscriber mark really, really helps your boy out. So I greatly appreciate you guys clicking that if you guys haven't yet. All right. That's it. I'm done. I'm going to shut the fuck up now. Let's win these bets this weekend. Good luck uh, and gamble responsibly.